Good morning. This morning's scripture is Genesis 42. Please read along or listen. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall go from this place. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? 
When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in a sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you are from a Greek family like I am, there is a high probability that you're exposed to a lot of drama, generally over family dynamics. It seems to find you out at family dinners, family gatherings. It kind of tends to get into your personal space. People ask me if I have seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and I tell them not only have I seen it, but I live it. (laughs) The drama and the dynamics, they grab your attention, they involve your emotion, and they become the family talk for the next year or 10. This morning I was sharing that with my wife and she said, thanks be to God that he brought a Bolivian to help balance you out, (laughs) which is so true. But our story today is filled with drama. Recall that Joseph's flight began because his brothers, who supposedly had his back, betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. Then they formulated a lie about his death. The overwhelming hatred that they had of eventually led him to be deceived, maligned, and imprisoned for a crime that he did not commit with Potiphar's wife. Because of their treachery, he was cut off from his family for over 20 years. Then add the details of our story today. More family dysfunction. The heartache of a bereaved father. Brothers who yet still don't acknowledge their wrong or their guilt for their injustice against Joseph. All the drama leads the reader to ask, will these brothers ever get it? Can't they just admit their guilt already? Will they take it to their own extreme? Or will they ever admit their wrong? The question also looms, how is God supposed to bring his blessing 
through this group of treacherous men. They've been living a lie, after all, for the last 20 years. Well, fortunately, God has a plan. It's a sovereign plan. It's a plan that rides on providence and is designed to bring Joseph's brothers to a place of conviction and remorse for what they had done. But it will involve severe testing. As we read, Joseph will test his brothers by putting them into prison, falsely accusing them, making them fear for their lives, making them wonder if they're going to lose their youngest brother. What a twist of fate. Sound familiar? And behind his actions, all that he's doing is to awaken conscience, to convict of sin, to help the brothers to do heart work and to admit they're wrong. Ultimately, it's for a place of sanctification. But apart from the conviction, apart from them owning it, there will be no real change, much less any reconciliation in this family. So God introduces into the storyline of Genesis a process of conviction. It's very important as we look at this story that even though Joseph is the most visible actor in this story, behind it, of course, is God himself. And God uses harsh and severe testing in order to accomplish his purpose. He's doing that through Joseph. And the purpose is to bring repentance. It's interesting as you look at this chapter that the bookends of this chapter are words about death. Verses 2 and 38 deal with death. That's, of course, not by accident. There's a message in that for us. The ultimate storyline of this passage is that the presence of unresolved, unconfessed sin is really bad. It does bad things, like separating brothers, like separating people from their creator. Well, in contrast, the awakening of conscience, as is the purpose of the story, the admission of guilt, though difficult, though painful, is a God-designed process. It's a right, it's a good thing, and God uses testing and conviction to awaken conscience. God uses testing and conviction to awaken conscience. If I had to summarize the theme of this story, I would say this. Testing and conviction are tools in God's hands to communicate that all is not well. Testing and conviction are tools in God's hands that he uses to demonstrate and communicate that something is wrong. All is not well. And I believe in chapter 42 that there's at least three key poignant lessons for us today. And the first is this. Remember God's providence behind the test. Remember God's providence behind the test. 
As I begin, I want to build some fences because I know that this can be sensitive ground. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Not all testing, not all suffering, not all difficulty, not all adversity is a sign that sin is present. Not all suffering is a result of sin. I cannot explain why there is suffering. I daily watch some of the most godly people deal and suffer with chronic pain. Not a result of sin. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. I can't explain a lot of suffering. Yet, as much as times we don't like to admit it, this passage and others requires that we dare not fail to see God's hand of providence behind difficult, trying, and testing circumstances in our lives. For example, from Scripture, we read the following in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Jeremiah 20.12. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In our story, in the midst of testing, God calls us to trust his providential hand. Think of it. Providentially, famine was brought to the brothers of Egypt. And famine brought the brothers of Egypt to Joseph. Providentially, Joseph was put in jail after false accusations of Potiphar's wife. Providentially, Joseph was promoted to governor of Egypt. Arguably, Joseph was the most powerful man of the land, second only to Pharaoh. And providentially, the brothers are standing now before Joseph. So throughout Genesis, we see that God providentially uses adversity and testing to convey and propel his purpose. But now, using adversity difficulty to bring conviction of sin and to prove what's in the heart of his people. I don't know about you, but for me, that's not an easy lesson. I wish I didn't have to deal with testing and conviction. Jerry Bridges says that the Christian must remember that the hardships that we encounter come from a God who is not only in sovereign control of every circumstance in our life, but who loves us and who deals with us only on the basis of love. Think of that, brothers and sisters. If you are a believer here today, God only deals with you in one way, out of love, out of kindness, out of mercy, out of for your good and for his glory. 
And while he is concerned that you do know joy and peace and happiness, we can't forget, he's concerned that you know holiness. Because out of holiness grows a deeper joy, a deeper peace, and a deeper happiness. Bridges continues. So in times of adversity, do not despise it by refusing to acknowledge God's hand in it. Do not lose heart under it by failing to see his love in it. Friends, God is at work through the test. And he does not waste one millisecond of your pain. Does not waste one iota of your difficulty. Joseph demonstrated a disposition for trusting God that he's fastly becoming one of my Old Testament heroes. We need to look at his life carefully and study it. In the entire interchange between Joseph and his brothers, while there is what I would call administrative harshness, there is never a remark of bitterness, never a remark of revenge, retaliation, or I'm going to get you back to his brothers for the way that he was treated. There's only a humble, honoring, I fear God that gave Joseph great stability and then led to the stability of all of Egypt. So point number one, remember God is providentially at work in the midst of your test. Point number two, respond to the conviction brought by the test. Respond to the conviction brought by the test. Behind the scenes of Joseph's activities with his brothers, God was at work shaping, sanctifying them with the goal to awaken conscience, to quicken the fear of God, and to bring conviction that would change the heart. So, Joseph supplies the testing. Phase one, harsh acquisition, excuse me, harsh inquisition and plenty of accusation. He says, you're spies, verse 9. You've come to spy out our land, verse 12. You're spies. In case you didn't notice, it was not a good thing to be accused in front of the governor of being a spy, as it could lead to imprisonment and or execution. So it is not a good day for the brothers. But the brothers respond, we are not spies, We are your servants. We have come to buy food. We are sons of one man. And, get this, we are honest men. Thank you for adding that. So picture the scene. The brothers are bowing down before Joseph, claiming to be honest men, yet failing to admit a crime that they had committed against Joseph that he he knew all too well. And he had the power to not only imprison, but to execute them. Can you imagine the flood of thoughts that must have been going through Joseph's mind? Mixed emotions, I'm sure, but he must have been battling. He recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. The scripture makes a point of saying that several times. He recognized them. He had memories of family of his father who he passionately loved. 
Maybe he had memories of the day in the pit when they put him there. Time in slavery, time in prison, all because of his honest brothers. And now he's got the brothers that are bowing down before him. Verse 9 said, when they did, Joseph remembered the dream. Back in chapter 37, the dream said this. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood aright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And now he has his brothers, as was predicted, bowing down before him. God is on the move. But Joseph's purposeful to bring the test. Phase one done, now phase two. Joseph orders them to prison. They would stay in prison three days and then be released, except Simeon, who would stay until the brothers went back to Canaan and returned with the youngest brother, Benjamin. Joseph declares they must be tested to reveal their character. That's a sobering thought. Must be tested to reveal their character. Imagine if that was you. And while in prison, the process of conviction begins. Look at verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our treatment of Joseph. The light starts to dawn, but yet it is incomplete. So, bring phase three. Joseph orders the donkeys loaded with grain, but they secretly put the money back into their carry sacks, meaning they failed to pay for the grain, which means they have the grain, they haven't paid for it, paid for it so they're outright stealing. So much for proving that they are honest men. So the day is going from bad to worse to really worse. And if you look down in verse 28, I will paraphrase, the modern Hebrew is, Rutro Elroy, we be in a heap of trouble now. <laughs> and it says, their hearts failed them, and they are now shaking. They know they're in trouble. And with a few more lights going on, their conscience begins to turn on, and they ask the question, what is God doing to us? Unfortunately, though there's small inklings of remorse, they are still self-focused. They are still looking to their own defense, and there still is no mark of true conviction. And the whole time, the reader, as they're reading this, is saying, will they ever get it? Will they ever really respond to the conviction being brought by the test? I mean, as you're reading this, you go, come on, guys, it's right there. And I have to warn you that the resolve for this story doesn't take place in chapter 42 like you want it to. The first time I read chapter 42, I was so intrigued by it. I kept reading and kept reading and kept reading. And I stopped at verse 46 and I said, oh, I can't preach 46 or 45 or so there's no resolve. It ends kind of like on a discordant note, but 
That's what we have. If you want the result, you have to keep reading when later on today. <clears throat> but while in prison, the process conviction begins. And they are shaking, and they are wondering, and will they ever get it? Friends, conviction from our Father, though painful, is ultimately a gift. It is a gift. It is a good gift. It's a gift with a purpose. He is at work shaping and forming and sanctifying. Though it is severe, it's severe mercy. Conviction from God is a work of God of severe mercy. In John chapter 16, verse 8, it says this about the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God at work in us will bring conviction. It's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Conviction is a work of mercy. By it, we see his grace. Conviction is a form of mercy, for it reveals something is wrong, something needs fixed, and we need help outside ourselves. Brothers and sisters, apart from conviction, we miss the sanctifying work that we need to grow to be like Christ. Above that, you miss the joy, you miss the peace, you miss the freedom that comes as you walk in sanctifying life. So in his love, God providentially orchestrates, in his love, let me say that again, God providentially orchestrates that your sins will find you out. Growing up, it was always me, never my brother, always me that got caught. And I always knew after a while, he can do it, he won't get caught, I do it, I get caught. What's up with that? And it was the mercy of God. But the conviction comes to bring us to a place of responding. If you are experiencing conviction, I encourage you to consider responding. As it was with the brothers, so it is with us. God will orchestrate that we will have conviction. Fortunately, friends, God is patient. God is patient. Just as it took the brother some time to, for the conviction to work, so, speaking of myself, from time to time, it takes time. God is patient. He is a shepherd. But he is a persistent shepherd. Is he not? He's a persistent shepherd. And his patience is never an excuse to ignore or delay attention to sin, nor an excuse not to confront the appropriate level of mercy, humility, and patience. But we must remember, God alone by his spirit must bring the conviction. We must always trust him 
to do the work in our hearts. So, husbands, wives, you are not the Holy Spirit. You are Christ's servants to one another. Teens, children, your parents are tools in God's hands. He chose them for you. He chose you for them. He's called them to be the authority. That's his plan. Submit to them. Employees, God will fashion and design the leadership and the system in your workplace, and he will do it to reveal your heart. And he'll write a testimony through your life as you follow and trust him amidst the tests. Trust him. If you're in a time of testing, God could very well be orchestrating difficult, sometimes trying details to address sin in your heart. If so, if that's you, allow me to give you a little pastoral advice. If you sense that there is conviction and God is drawing your attention, first remember, God is at work. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Look to him during the time of conviction. Secondly, respond to him. Don't harden your heart. Respond to God. Hebrews 3, 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion on the day of testing. When conviction comes, it's easy for us to harden our heart. Thirdly, if you are in conviction, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. As his child, you're gaining a greater knowledge of him greater likeness to him and greater joy in him. Give thanks. And lastly, trust God's providence. God has a providential purpose in the test greater than you can see, just like the story of Joseph. God is providentially at work. So point number one, remember God's providence behind the test. Point number two, respond to the conviction brought by the test. And lastly, point number three, resist the temptation to self-atone, which is self-justify throughout the test. Chapter 42, majors on the test, minors on the outcomes. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. The brothers begin to get a glimpse of something is wrong and that God might be trying to get their attention. While there is a beginning, recognition, there's no confession, no asking Joseph for forgiveness, no reconciliation, no obvious plea of guilty. Instead, it ends with brothers terrified about imprisonment or worse. 
It ends with Father Jacob grieved by the news of Simeon's imprisonment and Benjamin's summons and possibly their death. And then in between those two points of grief, you have this. You have Reuben. Reuben comes along and offers a solution. Self-generated attempt, self-atonement, self-justifying that was at best stupidly foolish and at worst deadly. As he offered the lives of his two sons as collateral for the life of Benjamin. I mean, as you're reading that, you want to go, thanks for playing, Reuben. That's really a good offer. But I don't think it's coincidence that you have two passages of grieving and potential death and those right around this self-atonement. Friends, be wary of self-atonement. Be wary of self-justification that tempts us during tests. It's a quick road to strife and spiritual barrenness. And it's definitely a step away from the gospel. It's the self-righteous person that seeks to be justified by his own accomplishments, his own good works, his educational accomplishments, his financial successes, and by his own spiritual piety. But for the self-righteous, there's little awareness of guilt and sin for it becomes buried in the blindness and deceit of subtle self-promotion. Friends, the Bible declares that every part of our life is tainted by sin. Every part, thoughts, emotions, motives. If I seek to approach God based upon my own performance or my own spiritual perfection, it's like trying to make a three-egg omelet with two good eggs and one rotten egg. No matter how you make it, it's still rotten, still unacceptable. Pursuing our own form of righteousness is no righteousness. Pursuing our own form of self-justification is no justification before God. It never brings Peace. It never brings forgiveness. It never brings restoration, at least that sin has caused. So friends, remember the providence of God behind the test. Remember he's at work. Secondly, respond to the conviction brought by the test. Thirdly, resist the temptation to self-atone with that. that tempts us during tests. Well, our story ends with a loud, looming, yet unresolved question. Will the guilty brothers see their sin? Will they embrace conviction? Will they repent? Will they confess? Well, stay tuned and read on. And while it's indeed a pertinent question for the brothers, it's also a pertinent question for the reader. It's a pertinent question for you and for me. Friends, like the brothers, we too have a storyline. And whilst it might not have the drama of this story, uh, 
Unfortunately, our storyline as well has sin. But because we have a merciful father, we have one who is orchestrating circumstances that speak to our hearts, that awaken our conscience, and that convict us of sin. He often uses circumstances between family or friends or work associates. But he ultimately uses, even in the midst of that, his word and his spirit to guide us, to direct us, and to show us our need for his atoning work. So this morning, as you consider the events of Joseph and his brothers, I invite you to ask yourself a question. Are there events in your life that God is doing to orchestrate and awaken your conscience to perhaps convict of sin? Is he trying to get your attention? Wives, do not elbow your husbands. How are you doing at admitting your guilt? In John chapter 5, Jesus says this, I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The gospel declares that we cannot save ourselves, that we need to be awakened to the reality of our sin, and we need to come humbly to the one who can save us, who can help us, who can rescue us. Jesus is calling those who know they have need of a Savior, who are aware that they have fallen. He's calling everybody. But his call is meaningful. Christian and non-Christian alike, only to the extent that we realize and acknowledge that we still sin every day. His call is for those who recognize. And the gospel declares that we cannot come to God on our own. We cannot come to God on our own strength. We do not come to him on our own merit. We come to God through the work performed on our behalf by Christ. The good news is in Christ... It is his righteousness that I have before the Father. I'll say that again. In Christ, it is his righteousness that I have before the Father. Do you realize, believer, that you will never be more righteous than you are today? You will not enter heaven unless you have a perfect Righteousness. That righteousness comes by being in Christ. And as a believer, you have that. And we approach God never on the basis of our own ability. It is always on his. And so if I'm approaching God based upon the reputation of Christ... I am free. I'm free to admit my sin. I have a friend who I said, you know, I want to share a sin with you. 
And he listened and he cared and then he prayed. And then he reminded me, you know, you've shared this much. I see this much. God sees the whole thing. And in Christ, it's forgiven. Friends, that's the good news. But before God, in Christ, we are forgiven and we approach him based upon his work. Therefore, we must apply the gospel daily. We must think of the gospel. It frees us. The chains are gone. We can be honest about our sin. We don't have to play games. We don't have to become defensive. We don't have to rationalize. We don't have to excuse our sins. God will be our defender. God has paid for them. If you're here today and you're seeking to be okay with God based upon your performance or lack of performance, please consider that you're missing the point of the gospel. You're not seeing or experiencing the riches that Christ has for you. In Christ, we're adorned with a magnificent declaration, accounted righteous through faith. The cross declares me guilty. The blood of Christ declares me righteous, washed of all sin, forgiven. It's a great exchange, the greatest of exchanges. I come by faith, surrender my sin and shame and my attempts at self-justification. I lay it at the foot of the cross, and in return, he gives me assurance of complete forgiveness, pardon forever, and adorns me with a robe of righteousness. If God is dealing with your heart this morning, bringing to mind areas where you've sinned and yet have to confess, and you're experiencing his conviction, please respond. And remember, his conviction is done so that you might experience yet again his amazing grace to forgive so that ultimately you praise the one for whom the grace is given. Let's pray. Well, Father, we want to praise all the more your name. You give us grace that we might know you. You give us grace that we might praise you. Lord, you bring conviction that we might repent and receive forgiveness and be set free. Father, you are a good God. And Lord, as you are orchestrating and will orchestrate in our lives times of difficulty, times of trying, times of challenge, I pray that you would give to us strength to trust you, to respond in a way that honors you. For that, Lord, we again look to your gift of righteousness through Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.